Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. The scripture today is from the first letter of Paul to Timothy, beginning uh, the 12th verse of the first chapter. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thanks, Ted. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to New King. I've got everything all set up here, so I think I'm ready to go. Um, So happy you're here today. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New King. Uh, Lucius, glad you're back. He led our worship. He's one of the other pastors here. And then Ben, our lead pastor, is on uh, vacation. He'll be back uh, next week. So um, one of the things I wanted to let you know right at the start is um, we're doing something a little new, which is absolutely, utterly frightening at New King. Uh, I am taking questions from the congregation. So as the sermon unfolds, if a question comes up, you may text it to this number, right? Or, if you want to handwrite it, you can write it on a Connect card and stick it in the bowl of the back. At the end of the service, I'm going to come up front by that big bass speaker and have my mic and gather over here, and I will attempt to answer your questions. Three rules. Only three. One. It has to be pertinent to what I'm talking about. It has to be pertinent to the sermon, to the text. It's probably not the time to go and ask about where, uh, uh, you know, what exactly happened to Lot's wife when she turned into a pill. What kind of salt was it? Was, you know, I, I, not that time. Pertinent to the text. Number two, I want you to write it. It has to be written down. So you think about it. So write it down. So either text it or write it. And then number three, I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. If there's a question that I don't feel comfortable answering, please allow, give me the grace to say, hey, I don't know, can I get back to you next week? Is that okay? That sound good? So last week we we did this and uh, I had seven or eight questions and my wife said, you didn't make too much of a fool of yourself. I think it went all right, so we're going to try it again. So what's 1 Timothy all about? What is the topic? Why did Timothy write? What is a summary 
of 1 Timothy. Remember last week, we had a look, and I just want to go over this again because I want to drill it into our heads. We learn by repetition. What is 1 Timothy like? I want you 10 years from now to say, oh yeah, I remember 1 Timothy. It's about, right? That's the whole point of this. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul writes this to Timothy and he says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's writing about how you conduct yourself, how you act, how you live your life in the church. And then he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, if that isn't anything, that is all about Jesus and who he was and what he did. So our conduct is related to the gospel and how we understand it. How we understand the gospel, Paul calls it good doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. How we understand that will dictate how we live, how we conduct ourselves. So what is 1 Timothy about? How we conduct ourselves in the household of God based upon the gospel. The more that we get the gospel into our soul, the more we'll live it out, and it will affect our lives and transform us. That's it, right? You with me on that? Okay. Let me, um, let me pray, and uh, we'll jump right into it. Father God, we thank you so much that we can be here this morning. I pray that you would help us to see what is in this passage Uh, Father, help me to say words that are clear and accurate to what Scripture teaches. Help us to just take in these verses this morning and have them affect our life. We ask for help through your Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. As Lucius gave a great introduction... This passage is all about worship in the household of God. Now, it doesn't come out and say that word. But what happens in verse 11, Paul says the teaching has to be according to the glorious gospel. And immediately, Paul responds to that. He says the word gospel. He writes the word gospel. The Spirit of God puts it on his heart, and he basically falls to his knees, and he worships. And he starts out with thanksgiving, and he ends with doxology and a prayer, and he says, amen. So while he doesn't say the word worship, he is showing us, teaching us, modeling for us the thankfulness that we should have to what Jesus has done. Last week, we saw that good teaching is according to the gospel. This week, worship is according to the gospel, and it's all about Jesus. As you scan this passage, nearly every verse talks about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. So, three parts today. 
A little exposition, go down through the passage, tell you what it says. Then some conclusions. What do we draw from this? How do we apply it today in 2022? And then if there's time, uh, we are looking at this as a countercultural message. So a couple of points about how this is counter to the culture we live here in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Okay? So, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Point number one, we worship Jesus for giving us strength and purpose. Strength. Paul says, I thank him who is giving me strength, Christ Jesus. Strength. Perseverance. Energy. Fortitude. An ability to stand. And in the context of this passage, in the context of chapter 1, to stand in the face of false teachers. Paul says, I left you there in Ephesus to deal with false teachers. In the household of God, there are teachers, both good and bad. We have to realize that. Paul says, oh, I thank Jesus who is giving me strength. It takes strength and energy and perseverance to stand against false teachers. And... uh, down in verse 18 and 19, towards the end of the chapter, Paul says, uh, I charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies uh, made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in the good conference, uh, conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So the context is this warfare, this fight, which requires energy and strength. And where does Paul get it? from Jesus. I thank Jesus for the strength. And then Paul says um, something interesting, because he judged me faithful. It's kind of interesting when you look back through the book of Acts and you see when Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared as a great light, spoke to him, and then immediately said, I have work for you to do. You are now, as a believer in me, I have turned you from your way. You now are following me, and I have service for you to perform. They didn't wait until he went through Bible college. They didn't wait till he got his MDiv. They didn't wait till he, you know, made sure it took. God said, I have things for you to do. It was immediate. And this is how God works. This is not something strange. This is not something odd. This is not something out of character with God. This is how God works. Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are all his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God has prepared beforehand. For you to do. 
How about that? That we should walk in those works. So God has works for us that are prepared for us. When we respond to the gospel, when we believe it, we become disciples of Jesus, and part of that response is we say, okay, Lord, what do you have me to do? We're not saved by the works, but in response to the gospel, we love Jesus and we say we're in your service. And Jesus says, oh boy, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) I'm so happy. There's joy in heaven. Now go do. You are my ambassador. You are my disciple. You are a minister of reconciliation. Go forth. Yeah? All right. So that's how God works. This goes all the way back to creation. If you read all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, the days of creation, we see the earth was without form and void. And what, and what God did was he took the formless and he gave it form. He took the empty and he filled it. So he formed and he filled. That's what he did all the way back from the start. I'm trying to say to you, this is how God works. This is not strange. And so you can't say, yeah, I'm just going to kind of go on in my Christian life. I don't know what God, God doesn't have something for me. No. No, it's from the start. You have to understand this. This is how God works. So you go back to the Old Testament. You go back to Genesis chapter 1. And on the fourth day, what does it say? Let there be lights in the expanse to separate day from light. Let them be for times and seasons and days and years. He formed the great lights, and then he gave them purpose. One to rule the day, one to rule the nights. He formed, and then he filled. And he gave them purpose. You see that all through the Bible. Day six, God made man. He gave him dominion. God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. And he said, you have something to do. (laughs) I give you dominion. You are now my representatives, my vice regents in this world. And you are to go out and bear the image of the glory of God and go out into the world. See, that's how God works. Which brings me to uh, something that occurred last week. If you were here last week... Um, and we were going through the passage, you may have realized that I did not mention in detail verse 10. And it came up in the questions and answers. Uh, somebody said, what? why did you skip over verse 10? And that's all the person said, and I know exactly what the person was referring to. He wasn't referring to liars. He wasn't referring to perjurers. He was referring to what verse 10 says at the beginning the sexually immoral, specifically men who practice homosexuality. Why didn't I talk about it? I'm not sure, honestly. I had it in my notes, and for some reason I didn't see it in my notes. Somehow I just skipped over it, and I'm not sure why. My wife thinks maybe God took control of that and said, now's not the time to talk about it. But given our culture, given where we live, I am just going to take a moment and talk about that particular issue. I don't mean to pull it out and highlight it in a way that says it's the worst of the sins, because it's not. So I want to say three things. Number one, 
The church of the living God has made a mess of this topic. We have responded to it with hate and exclusion to the point of violence. And I am so sorry that that has happened. If you are in this congregation this morning and that has happened to you, I am so sorry. That was wrong. There's no other way to say it. We have done a poor job, and I am so sorry. I apologize personally for the church. Secondly, point number two, the Scripture clearly says that we are to love our neighbor. You and I have a call, a responsibility to love those around us, to love those that God has put in our path regardless of their gender attraction, their gender identity, what their other religion may be. If they are in our sphere, they are our neighbor, and we are called to love them. If you are here this morning, and you are struggling with these things, we love you. We love you. Now, number three. This is the little bit harder one. As we understand the Bible, the Scriptures, we understand that God created us in His image as male and female. That's how we understand the scriptures. We understand that marriage is between a man and a woman and a man and a woman only. We feel that that displays the glory of God. See why I'm talking about this? Because I went back to, we display the glory of God. We're asked to be his representatives and we have to represent how he has defined us to be. And we understand here at New King that that is male and female. Anything other than that is disobedient to that image. It is not God's best. It is not the way for you or us to flourish as those made in his image. Now back to the text. Verse 13. So we see that Paul thanks him who gave us strength. We worship Jesus because he gives us strength and he gives us purpose. He gives us work to do. Now we come to verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Point number two, we worship God for his mercy that forgives us. We worship God for his mercy that forgives us. Now, Paul names three charges that he has against himself before he became a Christian. And these things are ugly. First off, he says, I was a blasphemer. 
A blasphemer is someone that speaks evil, heaps abuse, is ungodly in speech, and it's often used to curse people. I was a blasphemer. Secondly, Paul said, well, not only that, I was a persecutor. Stinging attacks against people, which can be both verbal and physical. It's interesting that there's a use of this Greek term for this outside the Bible in one occasion, and it means uh, it's used to describe a foreman in a quarry who is a virtual slave driver, overloading people with burdens that they can't possibly carry. Going back to last week, isn't that what a teacher of the law does? He establishes rules and regulations that are nearly impossible to live by. I just think it's interesting that that word was used like that on one occasion. And then Paul says, he was an insolent opponent. A violent man is what that means. Clearly physical attacks against other people. And we see almost a progression. You start out with curses, and then you heap abuse, and then physical attacks and violence come in. But Paul received mercy. But, he says, I received mercy. We worship God because of his mercy. Mercy means that the judgment that you and I deserve because of our actions, the judgment is withheld. I am not going to execute the judgment. I am going to show you mercy. And Paul says that's exactly what God did in my case. Praise God. And he did it even though Paul acted, it says, ignorantly in unbelief. Paul isn't trying to excuse it. This is not something where he says, ah, ignorance of the law, you know, you should let me go, officer. I didn't know the speed limit was 50 and I was driving, you know, 80. That's not what he's saying. Jesus on the cross Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the ramifications of what they're doing here. And Paul didn't understand the ramifications. He was ignorant and he didn't believe. It was a willful situation that Paul had. He chose not to believe. He would not believe. Instead, he acted out against the very thing he would come to believe. But God showed him mercy. And if you read through the book of Acts, there's several passages where Paul himself talks about what he did. And also in Acts chapter 9, 8 and 9, where we get a description of exactly what Paul was doing. He hated Christianity. He did everything in his power against it. We worship for his mercy that forgives us. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We worship 
Jesus for his overflowing grace that transforms us. Do you see that from this passage? Now, first, it's, it's not just mercy. Grace is added, and grace overflows. Mercy is judgment suspended. Grace is the positive blessing then bestowed. Both are undeserved. You are worthy of judgment. Instead, I bestow my grace upon you, my undeserved favor and blessing. And what did that blessing look like? What did did it look like? Grace overflowed in faith and love. Paul's ignorance and and unbelief were transformed into faith. Yeah, it changed completely. Paul's blasphemy, Paul's persecution, Paul's violence was transformed into love. This is how God works. He takes us where we are. We put our faith in him. We believe in him. His mercy and his grace overflow and transform our lives. And we worship God for that. We bow the knee and we say, oh, Lord, thank you for what you have done in my life. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. We worship Jesus for his great work of salvation. We worship Jesus for the gospel that saves us. Why did Jesus come? This verse tells us to save sinners. Those on the list in verses 9 and 10, those are the ones he came to save. The lawless, Jesus came to save them. The disobedient, Jesus came to save them. The ungodly and the sinners, Jesus came to save them. The unholy and the profane, Jesus came to save them. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, Jesus came to save murderers. For those that have violence against them, that's who Jesus came to save. Do you not see this? The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Jesus came to save them. The enslavers, the liars, the perjurers, and whatever else, Jesus came to save them. He came to save sinners. And what does Paul say? I'm the worst of the lot. I'm the worst. The foremost. With Paul, there is no moral superiority. There is only humility, gratitude, wonder, and astonishment because of the mercy and grace of God. 
and we fall on our knees and we worship. And now in verse 16, Paul says something a little bit surprising. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Patience. That surprises me. I don't know if it surprises you or not. Of all the things that Paul says, I I am going to be an example, I am going to be on display, it's because of the patience of God. I would have thought maybe the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace, he's talked about all those things, but now he comes and he says, the patience of God. I, I just find that amazing and surprising. Think about the context of this whole chapter. Teachers of the law, if you've been in a church that's legalistic where there are a lot of rules and regulations, the first thing that you find there is there's little patience. People are so quick to judge on your appearance, for example. They're so quick to judge. But listen to me. The giver of the law... The God of heaven is patient with you. He's patient with you. Oh, my word. I am so thankful that God has been patient with me. I'm the biggest dumb head that's ever lived, and God still puts up with me. Ask my wife. She'll tell you lots of stories. Listen, God is patient and we learn so much from that. I'm going to talk about that a bit at the end. What we, what we may learn from that. Verse 17. Now we have the doxology. Doxa means glory. Paul just, just responds to what he has been writing and he has been saying. And he says, oh, to the king of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Look, look, when you begin to see what Jesus has done for you, it will drive you to the same thing. Our response to what we know about God, what we know about the gospel, is to fall down on our knees and worship him and say, Oh, to the king. Oh, to the king. <sighs> to God, to the Father, to Jesus, to the spirit within us. We, that enables us to worship, we respond in that way. And that's what Paul does here. God is, is I- immortal. Oh, he first says the king of the ages. He's eternal. All kings come and go. All rulers come and go. But our king, our God, towers over time and eternity. He is sovereign forever and ever. Martin Luther says about this verse, God has no peer. He is king of the ages. With one wink of the eye, 
He beholds the eyes and crowns of all other kings in contempt. They are the kings of the hour, Martin Luther says, but he is the king of the ages. He is immortal. He will never die. He is not subject to death and the decay that goes with it. He is incorruptible. He is also invisible. God is spirit, not a physical being. In Exodus, God told Moses in the 33rd chapter, you cannot see me and live. But who have we seen? We've seen Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says in the 14th chapter, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is invisible, but Jesus has told him out. He is the only God. He is singular. We're going to talk about that next week in chapter 2. I think Camden's going to bring us a little word from chapter 2 where we read, There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God is one, the only God. And he deserves all honor and glory forever and ever. Will someone say amen? amen. Okay, how are we doing for time? Oh, we're doing great. Conclusions. A couple of thoughts, a couple of things to draw out from this. I want to talk to Christians, and I want to say three things to you. And I want to talk to you here. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you, if you haven't come to that place where you see him as your Savior, I want to say three things to you. So first, to Christians. On the positive side, what we see here in this little section is Paul is providing his testimony, yeah? His testimony. He's talking about how God saved him and how he did it and what he did in his life. And our story matters. I'm talking to you, Christians. Our, our testimony matters. It has power to witness for what God has done. We tell it to others, and we tell it to ourselves. Did you know that? We should be like Paul when we come to church on Sunday mornings, particularly when we remember Jesus and his death, when we have communion. Oh, Lord Jesus, you gave your body for me. It was broken for me. The blood was shed for me. We tell it to others, and we tell it to ourselves. So Christians... Our story matters. Do you know it? <laughs> Do you know your story? Does it truly reflect the gospel? Can you explain it in a minute or less? Can you then talk about it for an hour at a time? Can you do that? It matters. It's important. I was in college. 
not looking for God, a pretty young lady invited me to a Bible study, and I went. And I showed up, and I didn't know the Old Testament from the New, and a young man there went to Galatians 2, verse 20, and he said, the Son of God loved you, and he gave himself for you. Do you believe that? And it was just like on TV. Everything else moved out, and his face was right in my face. And everything went, it's like he's speaking right to me. And I stopped, and I, I said, I believe it. I don't know what it means. I believe it. And my life was changed in a moment. I was saved in that moment. I heard the word of God, and I believed it. It's been 40 years. I married that pretty young lady, by the way. <laughs> missing that. That's my story. You want to talk about it for an hour? You want to ask me questions? I'd love to tell you. Do you, can you do that? I encourage you to know your story. The short version, because people don't have time sometimes for the whole thing. And that's okay. And the long version. And maybe a version or two in between. Know your story. Yeah? Okay, number two to Christians. This is going to surprise you. We as Christians, those of the household of God who put our trust in Jesus, don't really believe the gospel. What? What are you talking about? Shocking! Of course we believe the gospel. That's what we've been talking about, right? Read verse 15. Why does Paul say this? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Do you really trust the gospel in your life? Do you really fully and truly accept it? Or do you live kind of a Sunday morning gospel? Or do you live in guilt and shame? And you just can't go past that. Do you trust the gospel? Do you fully believe it? And there's two parts to it. How bad you were and how much God loves you. Tim Keller says this about the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, Keller says, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel, and we err on both sides. We don't quite realize we're still sinners, and we still make stupid mistakes, and we're proud and arrogant and dumbheads. At the same time, at the same time, we struggle with truly accepting that God loves us, not because of our performance, not because of how good we are, not because of my style of dress and how cool I am. No! Thank you. Whoever said that is Luke. Thank you. Listen. He loves us in spite of us. We have to accept that. And we as Christians struggle with that. We don't believe it. I encourage you. This is a trustworthy saying. Worthy of full acceptance. We're sinners and Jesus loves us. Okay. Point three for Christians, still doing good on time. We, have, we learned something from this passage about the problem of evil. The problem of evil. So in, in today's world, people will say, well, if, if God really loves us and he's all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about all the evil around us? 
Maybe he's not powerful enough. Maybe he doesn't love us enough. What, why doesn't he do something? That's the problem. Verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. God could have saved Paul earlier. Remember, he was the one there when Stephen was stoned. And he held the clothes of those that were stoning Stephen and consented unto his death. Why did God allow that awful death for Stephen? Stephen could have been a good man of God. He could have start, gone off and been with Paul, but, but God let him die. But why, why didn't God stop the evil of Paul before that? Why did he wait till, till a little bit after that? And then Paul's on the road to Damascus with all these legal documents to arrest Christians. Then God stops sin. Persecution had to come. If you know the story of the New Testament, persecution had to come. It was used by God to fulfill the Great Commission. So God put up with the evil of Paul to achieve his ultimate purposes. Why doesn't God do something today about evil in the world? The problem of evil, God sees it. He knows it. It breaks his heart. But he's in control, and he's all-powerful, and he's patient. Another way to describe that is he's long-suffering. This is our God. He has done something. He sent his son to die. He is doing something. He's behind the scenes working everything as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is in control. He's sovereign. Okay, boy, time's going now. A couple more minutes. Three things to non-Christians. If you're here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, God is patient toward you. <laughs> he has been patient. We, we talk about this thing called common grace. You are here today because God has drawn you here. God has brought you here to hear from his word. It wasn't by accident. God is patient and he's working things behind the scenes to bring you to himself. So he's patient. He postpones his judgment. Some people say, why doesn't God just take charge today? If he were to come today as the king of kings, as the judge of judges, and put everything in place, that would be it. But he hasn't done that. He's patient. And then it says, his, Paul's conversion was for your sake. Very interesting. In uh, verse uh, 16, I receive mercy for this reason that in me as a foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and ex as an example of those who were to believe. Maybe that's you today. An example. Why? How? <laughs> if God can save Paul, 
a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, a murderer. He can save you. You may think there's no hope. You may think that you've done things. You may think you're never going to measure up. That's the point you don't. It's God's mercy that draws you to himself. It's God's grace that forgives you and showers upon you love and acceptance and gives you purpose in life. I implore you. I beg you. Jesus came to save you. God longs to shower you with mercy and grace and pour out love and belief and faith upon you. This is how he works. Today is a day of salvation. Put your trust in Jesus. All right, very quickly, how is this countercultural? Much about this passage is anthropology. It's all about how we see ourselves. Our secular culture teaches us that we are all inherently good. Our true self is good. The path to happiness is to live out our true self in the most authentic way possible. That's the epitome of happiness and success in our world, to live out our inner desires, to follow our hearts, and to do ultimately what we want. The gospel teaches quite the opposite. We're sinners. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our secular culture teaches us that if we deviate too much from the culturally approved standard, talked about this last week, we're canceled. We have no worth and there's no way back. No grace, no forgiveness, no apology is good enough. The gospel teaches that even though we all have fallen short of God's, of God's standard, we have immense worth in his eyes and we are loved in spite of our condition and God is just waiting to pour out upon us mercy and grace and forgiveness. They're all ours by simply believing in the gospel. Our secular culture, if we follow it to its logical conclusions, say that ultimately we have no purpose. There is no God. We just happen by accident in a pool of chemicals, the primordial soup, as you say. We arrived here by survival of the fittest. And when we die, that's it. There is no afterlife. There is no future. We have no purpose. But in the gospel, we have purpose and destiny. We have purpose. Out of gratitude, we glorify God that by believing the gospel and incorporating it into every part of our life, we become more like God, sanctification, and we do the works that God prepared before for us to do. And we have destiny. You know, Paul talked about salvation. We're saved from something, and we're saved for something. From and for. We're saved from the wrath of God, from our sins, from the judgment that we deserve, but that's not all. 
We have a destiny. We are saved for something. We will be with Jesus in glory. We have a hope now. We have a hope in the future. We have purpose and destiny. And where does that lead us? To worship God. We, as believers, as members of the household of God, we fall on our knees and we worship, worship Jesus for the gospel, for what he's done in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these verses. We ask that you would have us respond in singing and in worship for what your son has done for us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. Help us to worship now in spirit and in truth. Amen.